0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so today we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people have requested, the one that I have noted as the most recent requester, is our listener, Amy. I'm a little worried, I'm going to confess, <laughs> because... Um, We've talked before in the show about pioneers who advance the medical field, specifically as it relates to infants. They're usually super uplifting and really great stories. Today's subject definitely adds to that medical uh, improvement for the health of children, but it also has some problematic elements. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that people who have requested it necessarily know those problematic parts and they may be disappointed to discover them. I have several things that are on not the specific
1: topic that we're about to talk about, but several things on my episode suggestion list that I know that people who have asked for it are expecting like a 100% affirming, uplifting story, but there's like a bad side to it that yeah.
0: Yes. Um, I was describing this story to my husband in the car this morning, as I often do, sort of as a way to make sure I've got bases covered and, uh, you know, all the logic flows. And he said, I feel like history is full of this one M night shyamalan plot twist <laughs> where people seem amazing and then they turn out to have like this horrible thing about them. Yeah. Usually racism. <laughs> I was like, that's yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, especially this particular time period. We're gonna yes. Talk about so we were talking about Mary Breckenridge. She is known as the founder of American nurse midwifery. And, uh, she's an iconic figure in Kentucky. But as we have just alluded to, there are problematic parts of her, her ideology. There's some eugenics we're going to get to. Yep. So we're going to talk first about sort of her life and what led her to do this. And, and then at the end, we'll discuss these problematic elements. Yeah. So let's hit it. Mary
1: Breckenridge was born in Memphis, Tennessee on February 17th, 1881. Her father, Clifton Rhodes Breckenridge, was a congressman from Arkansas. So she spent a lot of her childhood in Washington, D.C.
0: Yeah, he's an interesting figure, too. There's like a whole uh, scandal, a voting scandal related to his, his uh, political career. But maybe for another episode. Uh, After Washington, the Breckenridges moved eventually across the globe to St. Petersburg, Russia, when her father was appointed U.S. minister to Russia. And Mary's education, as you may guess from this uh life of being in a pretty prominent family, was one of privilege. She attended private schools in the U.S. in Stamford, Connecticut, and at the Lausanne, Switzerland, and she had private tutors in Russia as well. Basically, everywhere they went, she had the best possible education.
1: At the age of 18, Mary moved to Arkansas, where she lived until her marriage to Henry Ruffner Morrison, who was a lawyer, in 1904. Mary was widowed after just two years with her husband when Morrison died because of
0: acute appendicitis. Still sort of dealing with this loss, Breckenridge enrolled in school again, this time in New York City at a nursing school at St. Luke's Hospital. She graduated and became a registered nurse in 1910. Six
1: years after the death of her first husband, Mary got married a second time, this time to the president of a women's school in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, Richard Ryan Thompson. Mary started to work at the school as a teacher. Her international education lent itself to teaching language, specifically French, and she also taught classes on hygiene. In
0: 1914, Mary and Richard had a son, Clifton Breckenridge Thompson, who they nicknamed Brecky. Two years later, in 1916, they had a second child, this time a daughter named Polly, and they were very excited about it. But their joy was abruptly cut short when she died just six hours after her birth. Mary wrote of this loss, quote, I grieved for the life she had missed, the splendid work she might have done, the human motherhood she might not know.
1: Two years later, four-year-old Brecky also died. Just days after his birthday, he got sick. He underwent surgery to address what doctors thought was an intestinal blockage. It became immediately clear that he had a serious abdominal
0: infection, and he never recovered. This death not only struck her to the core as a grieving parent, but it also really made Mary fear for her work and how it would be perceived by the public. She had been writing for several years about how to raise healthy children, and she had, in the course of two years, lost both of her own. She was worried that people would think that that meant she didn't know what she was talking about. Uh, Throughout the rest of her life, she believed that Brecky was ever-present in a spiritual sense and that she could communicate with him on the other side. The strain of losing two
1: children also took a toll on her marriage, Mary experienced bouts of depression, which continued through her life, and her husband, Richard, was not faithful— Mary left Richard in 1918 while World War I was still playing out. and She applied to work with the American Red
0: Cross as a nurse in Europe, but she had to wait for an assignment. Uh, In case you are ever looking at at information about her life, we didn't go into it. They will often list her divorce as 1920, which is when the divorce papers actually happened, but they had been apart for two years by that point. Uh, This reason for her delay, though, in joining the Red Cross was due to the rule that no one with a brother actively serving in the military could be sent to Areas where the war was taking place. This was, you know, in order to preserve the family and the likelihood that the place that the brother was stationed got bombed or raided Mm -hmm. or attacked in some way, and like a family would not lose multiple children at once. Uh, since Mary had a brother serving at the time, but really felt strongly that she could make an impact on the children of Europe who needed assistance, she and her mother went to visit the head of the American Red Cross Nursing Service, Jane Delano, and sort of plead her case to get around the rule.
1: Delano agreed that Mary would be an asset, but she still couldn't send her because of the brother rule, While Delano worked on Mary's behalf, Breckenridge took on a three-month assignment traveling through the country collecting data on the state of children's health and giving speeches.
0: Yeah, and just to be clear, that country is the U.S. She went far west Mm -hmm. and visited a variety of places. And when Mary was finally cleared to join the Red Cross Children's Bureau in France, she first went to Washington, D.C. to make arrangements and fill out the necessary paperwork. But this actually ended up being quite a detour. All of this was happening, you'll recall, in 1918, and Washington, D.C., like many other places, was hit really hard by the influenza epidemic, which we have talked about on the show before. As a nurse, Mary was desperately needed, so she volunteered to help almost immediately after seeing how badly overtaxed the medical services in the area were, and after she first asked Jane Delano if she could delay her trip to France a little while longer.
1: This volunteer job almost immediately became more than Mary had anticipated. She later wrote in her autobiography, quote, the head nurse of my area fell ill soon after I reported for duty so that I was plunged into the direction of nursing care for thousands and thousands of stricken people. I don't recall how many patients we had in my district at the peak of the epidemic, but it could not have been less than 40,000. Nor do I remember how many nurses I had to help me, but I don't think there were more than five. We used hundreds of aids for the day and night care of the patients with pneumonia and the families where everybody had come down with influenza. Many of these aides were clerks turned over to us from the, for the emergency by the government
0: bureaus, and only a few of them had received training in home care of the sick. To compound matters, this situation was so chaotic as medical personnel and people who had sort of been requisitioned into being medical personnel uh, to keep up with the ever-growing roster of patients that records were a little bit haphazard. She notes in her autobiography, like, some of the reasons it, clerks tended to write things about the deceased that had more to do with, like, their area of knowledge than actually were really relevant to the illness. Like, uh one person worked... uh for the government, and they talked about how one of the deceased patients had been uh, sacking away sugar, like she had been kind of hoarding sugar. And it was like, this isn't relevant to her medical information at all. Why are you putting this? But it was just the mindset of his his or her, I don't know the gender, uh, the previous job made them think of things in those terms. Bed bugs were also a really bad problem in the area that year. So nurses were fighting both influenza and infestation of their patients' homes. When the influenza
1: epidemic had passed, Mary went back to preparing to join the Red Cross, but her passport and loyalty papers had a longer processing time than she'd anticipated. Unwilling to just wait, she filled the time with the Boston Instructive District Nursing Association, where she furthered her education, After an abbreviated version of the association's training courses, she worked in underprivileged neighborhoods and tenements in Boston. She later said of the experience, quote, I was to be grateful a thousand times over after I got to
0: France of all that I learned in Boston. By the time she had her passport, it was after November 11th, 1918, and the war was over. But she still felt compelled to go, and so she made arrangements to be released from her obligation to the Red Cross, which was no longer sending medical personnel to France. And then she did travel to France to work with the American Committee for Devastated France. That was an organization founded by J.P. Morgan's daughter, Anne Morgan, and which Mary deeply loved, second only to the one that she would later found herself.
1: We're going to talk about Mary's work in France, but first we will pause for a little sponsor break.
0: The loss of her children had really been Breckenridge's inspiration to doggedly pursue work in children's health, and she never lost that sense of calling. She had been interested in children's health before then, but she really became hyper-focused on it after that. And she had been able to focus some of her public health work in Boston and Washington, D.C. on the needs of children. And she obviously was working in that area as she toured the country for her reporting assignment with the Children's Bureau. She then carried that focus and passion for the care of children to Europe as well. In her work with the ACDF, she started a program that focused on the needs of pregnant women, children, and nursing mothers, providing both medical care and vitally needed nutrition.
1: Even though the war was over, there were still heavy restrictions on where she could travel, so she had to once again wait for a military permit to travel into the war zone. Once she finally was approved, she saw immediately that the people of France needed all the basics, clothing, bedding, and above all, food. She wrote, quote, In the parts of France occupied by the Germans, it was not a question of the people returning to their shattered homes because they were already there when the Germans withdrew. But all around them, the ground, the bridges, the roads were destroyed so that it was almost impossible to get supplies to them. In some villages in the Nord, people had to be fed by airplane. With such widespread destruction, the problem of transport assumed gigantic proportions.
0: One of the vital parts of rebuilding the country that Mary was directly involved in was acquiring wheat seeds so that rural areas would be able to plant crops. She personally delivered the requests for wheat, and as the women chauffeurs in their organization were the only ones who were managing regular transport in the area, they delivered all of the wheat seed that ended up in the ground for that following spring. Even so, getting crops back up and running was actually quite dangerous because the fields were filled with buried explosives, and farmers who accidentally hit them while digging often died or required really extensive medical treatment.
1: The ACDF also helped people reestablish their households. In addition to seeing that they got seeds to plant crops and medical treatment, they also assisted by helping them get low- or no-cost furnishings and providing small animals to farms like rabbits
0: and chickens. And throughout all of this, the nurses and other personnel working under the umbrella of the American Committee for Devastated France were living in really rough conditions themselves. Public works such as water and electricity services were not restored for quite some time. And the nurses lived in a building that had been severely damaged by bombings. Mary wrote, quote, "The American Committee for devastated France was a masterpiece of an organization, not only in its handling of direct relief under baffling difficulties but in later developments that were to be integrated into the very heart of French life.
1: Mary really fell in love with the people of France, and she wrote in one letter to her mother that she saw so many families trying to fight their way back from malnourishment after the war." She wrote, quote, If I could give right now a goat to every family that has a baby, I think we could go far towards saving many that are dying. There is such grip and pneumonia among them that they have no powers of resistance. I wish I had a thousand goats right now. I wish I had 50. This goat thing is my favorite part of her story. Mine too. Mary's mother passed the letter around to friends and family and soon donations of money for the purchase of goats poured into the ACDF. Mary would later call this project her goat crusade because she also had to raise funds for feed for the goats for their breeding and letters back home to each donor to tell them about the family who was
0: benefiting from their generosity. Yeah, that was kind of before a lot of the modern charity organizations do things like that, but she was naming goats for families that had bought them and then, you know, would keep these correspondences going of, like, here's how the family that got your goat is doing, uh, which is pretty interesting. There's a really great story in her autobiography about the first truck, which I think had 29 goats. Like, she opens the door, and there was one goat that had apparently, like, destroyed a bunch of their medical supplies oh, and had, no. like, eaten baby bottles, which was like, I don't even care. I'm so glad the goats are here. <laughs> um And while she was in Europe, she also became acquainted with midwifery practice in both France and England, and she felt that it should be established in the United States as well. Ever eager for education, I have to admit that problematic though she is, I admire her constant quest to be educated, Uh, Breckenridge decided to formalize her learning on this subject, and she studied midwifery in several different schools in Great Britain and was certified by the UK's Central Midwives Board.
1: And we should note this isn't the first time that Mary Breckenridge had been exposed to the concept of a midwife assisted birth. When her family was in Russia, her mother had a midwife in attendance at the birth of Mary's younger brother, and that had made an impact on her. And as we're going to talk more about later, like midwifery has been along, as has been around in some way, as long as babies have been. Yeah. <laughs> like, and,
0: in, uh, yeah, she, she, it isn't like she discovered it. No. just kind of how she sometimes, uh, framed in the US. Yeah. Like we had no idea this was a thing. And it's like, no, 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 Not no, really. no. We... We're talking about more formalized <laughs> midwifery training yes. and programs. Uh, Additionally, she also studied how pre-war France had provided for infant care. And she learned that the public assistance office had this program which allowed new parents to bring their babies to a government office, usually like a town hall where a doctor would be, for weighing and for advice on their care. And that there was also a service in some cities of France which provided baby milk stations. But there wasn't much education for parents in how to handle milk and some of the other medical needs their child might have.
1: She saw what she felt was a gap in the system in the lack of parent education, and she decided that a visiting nurse service could fill that gap. So she set up a demonstration version so that it could get some data on its successes. Soon she was asked to expand the program, and she had to really scramble to find properly trained nurses
0: to staff it. Yeah, her little experiment, people were like, this is great. (laughs) Uh, Can you widen your area of coverage? And She was like, "Uh uh-oh, um... Before long, her nurses were seeing to the general health care needs of the communities in which they worked, and not just prenatal and early childhood care. She was really pleased with her success in this endeavor, but the administrative duties that it required took her away from the hands-on nursing that she loved so much. And as her role with the American Committee for Devastated France grew, Breckenridge was offered a car and a chauffeur to drive her as needed, but she opted to actually pool those resources with the other drivers who were already helping to deliver aid.
1: Mary also traveled to Scotland to expand her medical knowledge while she lived in Europe. There, she studied a nursing service that cared for a largely rural and decentralized patient base.
0: Yeah, that sort of helped her form a model for her later work. Uh, In 1921, Mary was ready to return home to be near her parents. They were getting older, and she definitely felt a pull to be with them. She also felt that the programs that she had worked to establish in France had reached a point where they could continue without her, and she felt that it was really important that they do so. Like She was aware that she couldn't stay there and direct all of this forever. She wasn't exactly sure what she would do next, but she wrote in a letter to her mother, quote, I know that the way leads back over the ocean to the country where my own children were born and where they are buried, the country whose development my own people have furthered for nearly two hundred years.
1: Despite this resolve, she actually felt really conflicted about leaving France. There was pressure to stay and develop nursing school programs for France, and for her last year she worked tirelessly to fulfill this request, only to have effort after effort fall flat. She felt in some ways as though she had failed, but having friends and associates' remark on the incredible
0: improvement of the health of France's children really bolstered her. And next, we're going to delve into the project that consumed the rest of Mary Breckenridge's life and which became her claim to fame. But before that, uh, let's take a little break and have a word from one of our sponsors. Once Mary was back in the United States, she again opted for additional education, and she took classes at Teachers College of Columbia University that focused on public health nursing. In
1: 1925, Mary Breckenridge relocated to Leslie County, Kentucky to try to make her idea a reality. She had inherited money from her mother, who had passed away not long after Mary returned to the United States. She used her inheritance to found and fund the Frontier Nursing Service, her concentration for the service was on prenatal and early childhood care, which harkened back to her experiences with the families in post war France. She wrote, quote, In France, I felt as I was to feel later in the Kentucky Mountains that a program for children should begin before the children are born and should place emphasis on the
0: first six years of life. So she chose the Appalachian Mountain area for a number of reasons. I know some people like to pronounce it Appalachian, we all do it differently. This one is one where I'm good with what I like. I <laughs> grew up in North Carolina and
1: spent 7 years in western North Carolina and I say Appalachian.
0: Yeah. Uh I mean I grew I was in Florida when I think I probably learned that word and they I was taught it as Appalachian, but I no disrespect to anybody who prefers the other pronunciation. I'm just saying whichever way we say it Somebody will be chagrined. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So she chose this area, as I said, for a number of reasons. First, it was woefully underserved medically, and most of the residents were too poor to travel elsewhere for care. Second, because her family had southern roots, she believed that she would be able to use their prominence to garner funding for her program. And third, she was kind of thinking long term, and she thought if she could manage to launch a nursing service successfully in the decentralized communities of the mountains, covering roughly 700 square miles, it would be a clear proof of concept that similar programs could work almost anywhere.
1: So to be clear, it wasn't as though Mary Breckinridge was the first person in the United States to think midwifery should be instituted here. And as we said earlier, there was more informal midwifery going back generations. Even in the area of Kentucky, where she set up her service, there were lay midwives who delivered babies. Like, that has been a thing <laughs> pretty much always. But they didn't have actual medical training.
0: Yeah, I think they're referred to in, uh, I'm not sure if it's her autobiography or another uh, paper that I was reading about her, where they're called granny midwives, and it's basically like, you know, an older, experienced woman who has been through childbirth herself, and then kind of helps mm-hmm. later generations do the same thing.
1: Well, and and when a birth goes smoothly, that's often fine, right? That's yes, yeah. that's, that's often the care that is needed is that kind of help.
0: But when things don't go smoothly, that you, you want medical training, right? Yeah. Uh, And it was, of course, really hard to get this service up and running. This was a mountain situation spread all over the place. Uh, But over time, Mary established a home visitation service so that patients could receive care without traveling themselves, as well as a number of district nursing centers and eventually a hospital. Mary's work had obvious results. After her service had been established and she had been providing
1: education to nurse midwives in Kentucky the region's neonatal and maternal death
0: rates dropped. In 1928, the FNS opened Haydn Hospital, which had 12 beds. Thanks to money raised through donors, it soon expanded to offer 18 beds and 8 bassinets, and an expansion in 1949 increased patient capacity to 25 beds and 12 bassinets.
1: As a direct result of Mary's work and the success of the Frontier Nursing Service, The American Association of Nurse Midwives was founded in 1929, just four years after Breckenridge had founded her service.
0: In 1931, Mary's cousin, Marvin Breckenridge Patterson, directed a film which was called The Forgotten Frontier, and it promoted the importance of the frontier nursing service and the types of care it offered. The film, which is silent, opens with title cards that read, quote, Do you know that America is still a frontier country for about 15 million people with almost no medical, nursing, or dental care? And that in our history, we have lost more women in childbirth than men in war? According to that documentary, the maternal
1: mortality rate in the Appalachian Mountains was cut by more than two-thirds thanks to the Frontier Nursing Service. Scenes in the film are reenactments of previous events played out by the same people who were involved originally and volunteered to recreate moments in their from their interactions
0: with the FNS. Yeah, the film features shots of Wendover, which was the log cabin that served as administrative building and nursing center and guest quarters for the service. And it makes it very clear just how remote the patients being served by this service were. Guests in the film arriving at the nearest train station had to travel 25 miles by car and then switch to horses before they could get to that central headquarters because the road ended abruptly and there was nothing but trail after that. One of the visitors to the FNS
1: asked how the nurses managed to get to their patients during the winter. And the reply was, oh, it's our most important work, so of course we go in any kind of weather. Nurses were shown on horseback crossing icy rivers in winter to deliver babies. And in another scene, a man is carried on a makeshift stretcher for seven hours to get to the hospital after receiving a gunshot wound.
0: You can actually watch this entire documentary online. Uh, I will link to it. There's an archival version of it that is available. And this documentary had a really clear purpose. It wasn't just like a, hey, this is neat. It was intended to help promote the Frontier Nursing Service, and more importantly, drum up donations. This entire enterprise was privately funded from Mary's inheritance, as we mentioned before, and from donations. And while the FNS continued its work over the next two decades, that remained how it kept going, through donations. Uh, It didn't receive any sort of government funding, I don't think, until the 1960s. No patient was ever turned away. Uh, If they couldn't pay but they could offer a trade of goods for care, the nurses were authorized to accept that. But if they could offer nothing, they still got treatment. It seems like
1: that two-thirds mortality drop from a promotional documentary might be a little inflated. But still, there was an obvious positive Impact, yeah, in the nursing service,
0: yeah, uh, it's a little tricky. That's one of the things that it would be an easy number to fudge because a lot of the people in those remote areas were not necessarily uh, reporting, um, yeah, things like births and mortalities regularly right, right. to the government. So we don't know how accurate. But I agree, it seems a little, yeah, as a big number.
1: Yeah, it is a big number, but like unquestionably, having access to basic medical care that wasn't there before would have made a big difference. World War II impacted the way in which the nurses for the FNS were trained. Before 1939, many of the nurses were sent to Great Britain to train as midwives, just as Mary herself had done. But the tensions in Europe surrounding the war made that unsustainable. And it was then that Breckenridge founded the Frontier Graduate School of Midwifery. The school continues today under the name Frontier Nursing University.
0: Yeah, obviously it has changed and evolved and modernized, but it is still the, the, the thing that has grown out of that core entity. In 1952, Mary published her autobiography, which was titled Wide Neighborhoods, the Story of the Frontier Nursing Service. Once again, this was at least in part a way to make money for the FNS. The proceeds from the sale of the book went right back into keeping the people of rural Kentucky cared for and educated about their health.
1: Reckonridge died on May 16th, 1965, in Hyden, Kentucky.
0: She worked right up until the end. I mean, she literally she had fallen off a horse at one point and had to wear a brace, but she still had to keep riding the horses to get to her patients. She was working basically until the day she died. Uh which is all pretty inspirational. But we gotta talk about the problematic parts now. Um while Breckenridge's contributions to medicine are undeniable, she had some deeply problematic views. First, she was a fan of eugenics. Uh, from early on in her career, she wrote articles for publications, such as Southern Woman's Magazine, in which she encouraged women to carefully select their mates as only people of, quote, good blood should be having children.
1: Eugenics was, by the 19-teens, gaining popularity in the United States as a way to in- to eradicate disease and infirmity, as if you haven't listened to our podcast about the Calicacs and the eugenicists, like we talk a lot about how this, this wasn't just something that was a fringe element in society. It was like a mainstream taught in standard high school biology textbooks kind of thing. So it is absolutely easy to see why someone interested in nursing might have been into eugenics. But the way most eugenicists in the United States envisioned these improvements was specifically through keeping the bloodlines pure without integration of immigrants into families.
0: Breckenridge believed that women in the U.S. were duty-bound to have healthy babies to keep the country strong, and that to do so, those babies had to be white, ideally white blood from Anglo-Saxon roots. Yeah. She definitely had, like, a hierarchy of even people that would all be sort of umbrellaed under white of which ones were the best, kind of went Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, and then kind of went down from there. Like, she really very clearly had no problems comparing people and deciding which ones she thought were the good ones and which ones were lesser.
1: She also thought that women couldn't be creative like men because their creativity expressed itself biologically through making children. And while an official stance on birth control wasn't included in any any literature of the Frontier Nursing Service, Mary Breckenridge believed that contraceptives weren't as good a remedy for rural Kentucky's problems as education would be. She had to personally approve any tubal ligations performed by the service, and even then, she would only do it if there was a medical reason or for women who already had at least five children.
0: Yeah, she didn't seem to really get super involved in any of the politics surrounding other aspects of healthcare outside of like maternal and children. And she even uh wrote that she thought like birth control was interesting and that uh you know that was that was good for some people but not for her patients, which is a little again, she's problematic. Five years after Mary's death, ground was broken for a new hospital to be built and named for her. And the Mary Breckenridge Hospital was dedicated in 1975, so it took a while to build, and it assumed the general care duties that had been handled previously at the Haydn Hospital. And then the Haydn facility was converted into a teaching center, the Frontier School of Midwifery and Family Nursing. In
1: 1982, Mary Breckenridge was posthumously inducted into the American American
0: Nurses Association Hall of Fame. As of 2015, there were 39 accredited graduate midwifery programs in the United States and more than 11,000 certified midwives and certified nurse midwives. So while she is considered the um the sort of mother of midwifery in the United States, uh it really grew very quickly and clearly, I mean it was addressing a need that was there already and oh, that yeah. people were super interested in. Really more than midwifery, I feel like she should be maybe lauded as a person who introduced medic like formalized medical training yeah. in general. Uh but that's Mary Breckenridge. Do you have some listener mail for I us? Do. I do and it made me smile really big when I read it. So that's why you get it. Yay. It is from our listener, Debbie. Um, and Debbie writes Dear Tracy and Holly, hi, my name is Debbie, and I love to listen to your podcast while grading mounds of math homework, assuming that the teenagers I teach actually turn in their homework. Thank you for your well-researched and entertaining stories to help make grading not as monotonous. Your podcasts also feed my insatiable thirst for knowledge. I find myself sharing what I learned from your podcast with colleagues, students, and my friends and family regularly. The question, how do you know so much, is asked of me by more people all the time, and I give you credit on, at minimum, a weekly basis. I was just listening to your podcast on Skellig Michael, and in it you talked about the beehives uh, in their natural form, paraboloids. Those are the beehive huts that were on Skellig Michael. As a fan of both large words and math, that was right up my alley. That combined with the fact that this island is a character in Star Wars, which is another way I get my geek card on, will give my students in math for liberal arts majors something fun to read about for their next Socratic discussion. Thank you. And she also uh, gives us a a suggestion. Uh, Debbie, thank you for being an educator and for, you know, finding new ways to connect yeah. things to students and get them excited about math, which I know is sometimes a struggle. I was not always a great math student myself. Um, and, yeah, I, I always love it when educators write us because it gives me a chance to thank them for the work they do, Yeah, which sadly is often thankless <laughs> uh-huh. and is, to my mind, one of the most important jobs you could possibly have. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. That includes Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, etc. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode of the show that has ever existed long before Tracy and I were involved. And for the ones that have happened since Tracy and I were involved, you'll also find show notes and the occasional additional blog post. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com.